Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, many of the history makers of the world were people who were considered a little bit mad by their contemporaries. You know, it's usually the people with great bravado that do something a little bit crazy and end up kind of changing the world or making some amazing discovery. Today's topic, which features a man and his expedition, it definitely falls into that category. But the unmet goal of the plan has left a lot of room for debate about how he's defined and how this mission is defined. This uh, is going to feature some high adventure, some really wild courageousness, and just positivity in the face of what I think would break most people. Uh, so we're actually just going to jump right in and not really set it up a whole lot. And we're actually going to start sort of at the end of the story. So that end where we're starting is a discovery. White Island, which is known as Kviteo in Norwegian, is an island in the Svalbard archipelago. And Svalbard means cold coast, which makes sense uh, because all these islands sit in the Arctic Ocean. White Island is normally completely covered by ice except for two little points of rock. But in 1930, there was a really warm spring and summer and more of the island than normal was exposed. And because so much of the ice on White Island had melted, a Norwegian sloop called the Bratvag, which was uh, on a combination scientific slash sealing mission, was actually able to stop at White Island. And during the sloop's time there, a geologist named Dr. Gunnar Horn and his team followed these walruses that they had spotted on the island. But while they were following these walruses, they found, much to their surprise, something that they had absolutely not been looking for, which was a diary. The book was pretty wet. It had been sitting under the ice as the ice melted and parts of it were stuck together. On the opening page were the words, The Sledge Journey, 1897. And so when the geologist Horn took this book back to Peter Eliasson, who was the captain of the Bratvag, he discovered that two of the sealers that had been traveling with them had also made a discovery. While they were uh, exploring White Island, they first found a metal lid, like to a what had possibly been to a tin of food, and that kind of gave them pause. And then, uh, not far from there, they found a canvas boat. And this boat uh, had a hook, and the hook was stamped Andres Polar Expedition, it's actually P-O-L period, E-X-P period, 1896. They explored the area a little more and quickly found a lot more stuff, including a headless body, which was reduced to little more than a skeleton. Its clothing was monogrammed with the letter A. And then they all kind of put the pieces together. While the men aboard the Bratvag had landed in White Island to study science and hunt seals, what they had actually found was the remains of a long-lost ballooning expedition, which had tried to make its way to the North Pole 30 years before. And so that man that they found, they found others as well, but uh, his name was Solomon August Andre. And he was born in Grena, Sweden in 1854. Just for very brief on him as a young man, uh, when he was only 16, his father died. He became very, very attached to his mother. They were already close, but that deepened when his dad passed away. And he uh, attended Stockholm's Royal Institute of Technology and studied engineering. In 1876, then 22-year-old Andre traveled by steamer to the Centennial International Exhibition in Philadelphia. 
This is a journey that would turn out to be really momentous for Andre, because while he was reading about winds during this journey to the Atlantic, he was inspired to think about balloon travel. And when he reached Philadelphia, uh, he actually got a job at the Swedish Pavilion uh, at the expo as a janitor. And he took advantage of his location while he was there by visiting a Philadelphia resident by the name of John Wise. And Wise was really famous for his work in ballooning. And because Wise had flown in all manner of weather conditions uh, and he had walked away from virtually every possible type of crash that a balloon could have, uh, Andre felt like this man kind of served as proof that ballooning was a perfectly safe mode of travel. The two became friendly and Andre requested the chance to accompany Wise in his balloon which the experienced balloonist agreed to do. But the planned day for their trip, which was a 4th of July celebration, wound up having really high winds. The balloon collapsed before the trip could even start. And before they could reschedule their outing, Andre got sick and decided to go back to Sweden. And once he got home, he was still obsessed with this balloon idea. So he decided that he needed to raise funds to purchase his own balloon. Uh, and he did this by setting up a machine shop. But that, unfortunately, was not really a great money-making plan. He ended up in a great deal of debt. And he really found the whole idea of running a retail business uh really unpleasant to him. He didn't like marketing. He didn't like the mode of marketing that was popular at the time, which was talking trash about competitors. He found the whole thing distasteful. It just wasn't a good fit for him. So he closed up his shop. And he still had never had a balloon ride. When he was 28, Andre participated in the first international polar year as part of the Swedish delegation. Austrian explorer Carl Weyprecht had inspired the international polar year, being certain that there were meteorological and geophysical problems that could only be solved by a cooperative effort that was aimed at gathering and studying information from the Earth's poles. So, This was actually a huge event. Uh, Eleven different countries sent delegations to work on these coordinated expeditions that were part of this first international polar year. And Andre's group went to the Svalbard island of Spitsbergen. And one of the experiments that was conducted there actually involved Andre being confined indoors for an entire month to see if his skin color would change. Uh, and it did. It took on this yellowish hue that had been seen in other people after they'd been through an Arctic winter. Prior to that, they weren't sure if that was something going on with their vision having been altered and people just looked that way or if there was actually something happening in the skin that changed its its hue. Uh, and then due in large part to Andre's work in aeroelectricity, the Swedish delegation was really recognized for the impressive results of their work as part of this bigger cooperative effort. And after this expedition was over, though, Andre went to a fairly mundane job working for the Swedish patent office. He did, however, finally get to take a balloon ride. And that's what we will talk about after a brief word from a sponsor. So despite the fact that uh, Andre had been fascinated with balloons since he was only 22, he had not actually gotten to ride in one. And that didn't even happen until he was 38. So for 16 years, he had kind of been pining for this experience. And his eventual escort in this was what's uh, the man who's called Norway's first balloon skipper. And his name was uh, Captain Francesco Chetti, uh, which I know is an Italian name. <laughs> he was Ital- of Italian family, but he was Norwegian. I'm not sure how the Norwegian 
Language shift would have changed the pronunciation of his name, so we're going with the Italian version. Uh, Chetty was an interesting figure in his own right. He was also a mind reader and a starvation artist, where he would like go without food for long times as these big sort of public stunts. Chetty was kind of annoyed by uh, by Andre's behavior during this first outing. He called it, quote, disagreeably calm. According to Andre's own account, he was trying to be completely aware of his mental and physiological responses to the situation, noting that while he didn't consciously feel any fear, his body acted in ways that suggested he did unconsciously feel some fear going on. He found himself, for example, tightly gripping the ropes on the balloon. He took only one more flight with Chetty before deciding that he ought to get a balloon for himself. And he was actually able to finance the purchase through a Swedish science fund. Uh, this was basically a fund set up for people to use money uh, if they were going to work on science projects or things that would better the Swedish people as a whole. And so once he had his balloon, he took nine solo trips in it. And each time he was really scientific about carefully detailing his observations. Remember, his education was engineering, so he was a really excellent note taker. Uh, and on one trip, he actually ascended to 14,250 feet. That's uh, 4,343 meters. So for context, cabin pressure in modern airplanes is set to correspond to what humans would experience up to 7,000 feet uh, or 2,100 meters, a little over that. Uh, so he was basically flying in this balloon without protection at twice the altitude that safety regulations say we should aim for in terms of keeping people comfortable and safe. Uh, and he described this during this journey, a lightheadedness and a terrible headache and uh, a faint, uh, quote, a faint singing noise on the left side of my skull. <laughs> so for another comparison to a previous episode, uh, we've talked about Mount Everest, which is 29,000 feet. Uh, however, those most people that summit Everest are using oxygen tanks to help them along. This is a case where there was none such. They're also acclimating on the way up. They're not just ascending Correct. at a balloon all that way. I'm surprised they didn't get the bends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was a uh, a resilient dude. So maybe he did. We just don't know. So anyway, uh, on another of his trips on his balloon, which he named the Svea, he tested out the use of drag ropes and a sail to try to steer the vessel. And these would eventually become important as part of his eventual plan to explore the Arctic. And after his ninth trip, uh, he sold his balloon to a museum. It was an outdoor museum where they would have space to put it. And his engineering background and his wind study and his experiences in ballooning had basically given him a really big idea. At this point, a lot of explorers were totally focused on the North Pole. Numerous countries had launched missions to go north. And of the thousand men who had tried to get to the pole, 751 have, had died. So... Most of them. It was really serious business, and being the first to get to the North Pole was going to be a significant point of pride for whatever country could claim it. And so on February 13th of 1895, when he was 40 years old, so this is only two years into his ballooning experience, Andre addressed the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. And during that speech, he outlined his very ambitious plan to travel to the North Pole via balloon. And a few months after his talk at the Royal Swedish Academy, Andre gave basically the same talk to the Sixth International Geographical Congress in London in the hopes of getting uh, funding in the form of a little less than $40,000 worth of money. I think I've seen it listed as around 38000 
Traveling by balloon and leaving from Danes Island in the Svalbard archipelago, he expected to go north for about 43 hours to reach the pole. The balloon that he traveled in would be outfitted with the drag ropes and sail that we talked about before to try to enable steering and control of the balloon. The next part of his plan involved uh, crossing over the pole and then continuing over that point to travel for several additional days. And his intention was that he would eventually land in Asia or perhaps Alaska, depending on how the wind moved him. Uh, And once he landed, he planned to travel over land on foot until he found civilization so he could arrange for travel back to Sweden. It may surprise you to learn that Andre's outlook, as he described this whole plan, was positive and enthusiastic, even when talking about the possible obstacles he might encounter once he got the balloon on the ground and tried to find his way home. He could use waterways to travel, he said, and he seemed really confident that even if he landed in a desert, he would surely find vegetation and shelter, and surely any people he would encounter would give him directions or help him back to civilization. He really was a positive thinker. I got to give him props. Uh, he felt like this plan to reach the pole was going to succeed where others failed. And that was because he was going to circumvent all of those perils of traveling by sled or on foot by taking to the air. What may have really been the moment where Andre won over the crowd was actually something of a jab that he made at one of the men who tried to contest this plan. American General Adolphus Greeley made his opinion known that he thought this plan was foolish and had not been thought out. And Greeley, you may recognize that name, had been the commanding officer of an expedition to the Arctic Circle in 1881. That was the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition, and it was intended to gather scientific information about the Arctic and to uh, set a new record for the farthest point north that had been reached by explorers. And this expedition met with great tragedy. Uh, the crew ended up stranding in the Arctic for years, and all but Greeley and five other men died. So the majority of his crew did not survive that. In response to Greeley's objections to this three-man balloon plan, Andre said, I risk three lives in what you call a foolhardy attempt, and you risk how many? A shipload. So as Andre left the stage, the entire hall cheered him. And in the end, uh, most of the money that he needed for his polar balloon came from none other than Alfred Nobel and Sweden's King Oscar II. Before we get to the exciting adventure of the expedition itself, let's have one more brief sponsor break. Yeah, the breaks are a little close together, but that's because I want to keep the whole expedition all in one piece. So we'll have a quick break and then we'll come right back to it. So uh, once he had his funding secured, Andre commissioned a Parisian-built balloon, which was made from layers and layers of varnished silk. And this balloon was named the Eagle. The hydrogen balloon was 100 feet, 30 meters tall. And to protect this impressive uh, inflatable as it was readied for flight, as they filled it with air and got everything ready, he also had a house built for it on Danes Island, which uh, I believe was five stories tall. And this custom house actually had a felt-lined interior so that anything the balloon touched would not damage it. And one entire side of the house could be quickly removed when the balloon was ready to go. And the windows were made of gelatin. Like, it was basically everything soft that won't hurt this balloon. Andre chose two other men to complete his crew for this ambitious plan. These were Niels Strindberg and Niels Eckholm. Strindberg, who was 23, taught physics as an assistant professor, and he was also the cousin of the famed playwright August Strindberg. Eckholm was the oldest of the team at age 47. 
he had led the Spitsbergen expedition that uh, Andre had participated in, and he was an experienced meteorologist. And so for several weeks in 1896, the eager Andre and his companions attempted to begin their journey, but they were just constantly thwarted by in their efforts by unfavorable conditions. And to make matters worse, as winter set on, Ekholm left the team. He didn't think this was such a good idea after all, and he bowed out. Fortunately, Andre already had an alternate at the ready. That was Newt Frankel. He was an athletic civil engineer and was 27 years old. But his troubles were not over. Andre's mother died suddenly as they were preparing to set off in 1897. While Andre seemed kind of placid to those around him, he was really deeply melancholy at the loss of his mother. He wrote in his journal, quote, the only thread which bound me to the wish to live is cut off. Yeah, she was really his only, like, close relationship. He mentioned at one point when he was younger that he really just decided he was never going to have romantic interests because he knew he wanted to become, you know, an explorer and do great things once he had married this idea of ballooning. And he didn't ever want a woman to make the tearful, you know, request to him to please don't go and do this thing and him having to say, no, I'm doing it. So his mother was really, it really was his one tether. And so without that, he was sort of starting off with a, a bit of heartbreak. And finally, after they had waited for the perfect conditions and the winter had passed, the team was finally able to leave Danes Island on July 11th of 1897. And I sort of love this. But the last words that Andre was heard to utter by the onlookers were, what's that? As the balloon had struck something as it headed out on its expedition. Maybe unsurprisingly, giving the inauspiciousness of those words, almost immediately there were problems. The drag ropes were pulling the basket down into the water and they had to be cut. The three men aboard also quickly dumped about 450 pounds uh, or 204 kilograms of sandbag ballast to try to lift their transport out of the icy ocean. As the vessel and its team, who were still struggling with these problems, vanished out of the sight of the onlookers, they were traveling north at about 20 miles an hour, which is about 32 kilometers an hour. And the ropes that were designed to help them steer were now gone. Yeah, so they were drag ropes. Not a great idea. (laughs) You don't often see a a balloon tootling around with a, a rope dragging from it to the ground, and there are reasons for that. Uh, so what happened to the team next was actually put together from the journals, which were found in 1930. Uh, and while all of the men wrote records of this whole wacky adventure, Andre, not surprisingly, was the most prolific writer of the group. The first night of their journey seemed to be really incredibly joyous. Andre marveled at seeing the vast expanses of ice, which were dotted by polar bears. In the morning after the first night, the team had breakfast and coffee, and they traveled through some hazy conditions that were just above freezing. And as the day stretched into the afternoon and that misty weather continued, the basket dropped and it bounced repeatedly on the ice, as often as eight times in 30 minutes, according to their records. They had lost enough hydrogen that they could not stay aloft, but despite this bumpy going, the team all stayed really upbeat. While taking a watch as his comrades rested, Andre wrote, It is not a little strange to be floating here above the polar sea, to be the first that have floated here in a balloon. How soon, I wonder, shall we have successors? 
We think we can well face death having done what we have done. Isn't it all perhaps the expression of an extremely strong sense of individuality, which cannot bear the thought of living and dying like a man in the ranks, forgotten by coming generations? Is this ambition? And as that bumpy ride continued, uh, seasickness kind of hit Strindberg, that he was really getting quite ill. So they dumped a great many of their sandbags so that they could get enough lift that they would stop thumping on the ice. But as the third morning of their trip came on, the basket once again dropped as the conditions turned even foggier. And then it suddenly rose high in the air as it warmed up a little bit. And the team released some gas so that they would drop down a little bit again. But they were just having trouble regulating their place in the air. And after fighting with the situation for a while and growing a little more frustrated, they finally decided to land on the ice. And they did so at around 8 a.m. And at this point, they had been traveling for 65 hours and they were more than 500 miles or about 800 kilometers into their ride. For the next week, the three men plotted what their next move should be. They had, as part of their preparation, made plans for various possible events. And this included packing sledges or very heavy sleds for each of the men to pull. So the trio spent their planning time carefully selecting what they would load onto these sleds, which they pulled using ropes that were wrapped around their shoulders like harnesses. These sledges weighed hundreds of pounds, so this was really no small task. And sometimes the men would... All three pull one sled and then go back and do the same with the next one and then bring up the third. And they had also arranged to have depots set up in two places in the events that they needed them. The first was on Franz Joseph Land, which was part of a Russian archipelago. And the second smaller depot that they had arranged was on the Seven Islands, and that's back part of the Svalbard archipelago. After they had packed their sleds, the first men set out towards the Russian depot The men managed to shoot several polar bears along the way and prep them to use as food. Picking their way through the ice flows was really treacherous and exhausting, but the men all seemed to bolster one another. They did fall into the water from time to time, though, and the average temperature stayed around 32 degrees Fahrenheit, or zero Celsius, although it did drop from time to time. So I would imagine being in wet clothes, I wouldn't even imagine, I would know for certain being in wet clothes in those conditions would be very treacherous. It would and miserable, but really all their diaries are so sort of like positive. It's it's almost freaky. I wonder we'll if it's to one reason. I wonder if it's because hypothermia was affecting their their attitudes. <laughs> Maybe we'll get we'll get to one reason why they might have been happy despite their their seemingly miserable circumstances. Um, so several days into their trek towards Franz Josef Land, there were two major setbacks. First. Frankel started to experience snow blindness. So uh, this is known clinically as photokeratitis. And snow blindness basically occurs when the cornea of the eye becomes burned by ultraviolet B rays. Uh, this happens a lot in cold areas with lots of ice and snow because it reflects off the snow up into your eyes even when your head is down. Second, they became aware that they had been walking east on the ice but that same ice was actually drifting west at a much faster pace than they were making. So they had been struggling all that time with the sledges and working out all the pushing and pulling, and they really had made no headway whatsoever. So by August 4th, they abandoned this plan to travel east to the Russian archipelago, and instead they decided they would switch directions and head to the Seven Islands Depot. To make matters worse, the temperature started to drop by several degrees, And 
Fortunately, they did have food supplies, including butter, bread, and biscuits, as well as water. They supplemented this with polar bear meat when they could, and they even tried eating the bear meat raw, as well as making blood pancakes out of bear's blood mixed with oatmeal and fried. They also made algae soup, which does not sound nearly as disgusting as the bear blood (laughs) pancakes to me. I was talking with friends about this last night while I was working on it, and um, I was describing blood pancakes to one of my friends who is also a big foodie, and he goes, that sounds kind of French. I'd try it. (laughs) (laughs) And it does. Then when I thought about uh, some of the things my grandmother cooked, it does sound pretty French. Um, So despite their exhaustion and this totally desperate situation, the tone of Andre's journal entry still is almost oddly positive. And this could have been because in addition to their food rations, they had also brought quite a bit of opium with them. They used it as a pain reliever and also to treat diarrhea. Uh, and they also had morphine. And in some cases, they were double dosing with the opium and the morphine. Frankel, in particular, seemed really plagued uh, by problems. He twisted his knees. He had digestive distress. This is actually kind of uh, ironic because Frankel, one of the reasons he was chosen was because he was very athletic and they kind of envisioned him being like the strong pack mule of the group. But he seemed to struggle the most with all of this travel. So according to Andre's notebooks, he was the one that they were kind of constantly having to figure out when he needed opium dosages. In the first days of September, the crew managed to travel by boat, which, while grueling in its own right, was a really welcome change from pulling these heavy sledges. To celebrate Strindberg's birthday on the 4th of September, Andre gave him letters from his family and his fiancée, which had been given to him before they left Danes Island. This was a happy surprise, though. Uh, but unfortunately, Strindberg later fell into the water and ruined all the rations that he was carrying. Yeah, it was kind of a day of ups and downs. Um, and then a few days after that, on September 9th, they realized once again that since they had switched directions on August 4th, they had again been thwarted by the movement of the ice. So they had been trying to travel a little more than 80 miles or roughly 129 kilometers southwest. But again, because the ice that they're walking on is also shifting, they had actually been drifting about the correct distance, but instead to the south-southeast. This is also the day when Andre's diary kind of drops off. He stops doing his regular entries, which seems like a little bit of a clue that he might be losing heart. On September 17th, he wrote that an especially bad blister on Frankel's foot had rendered him unable to pull his sledge anymore. So he and Strindberg had been running back to get the third one and to play catch up with the others periodically as they all traveled. There had also been some snow, which added extra weight to everything. They managed to kill and eat a seal, and then they realized that they were going to be trapped out there on the ice through the winter. Even with all this hardship, uh, he he wrote, quote, Our humor is pretty good, although joking and smiling are not of ordinary occurrence. And on September 19th, there was actually a little bit of a ray of hope. Uh, Andre managed to shoot three seals, and that meant that with those, once they were dressed for food, and their remaining food stores that they still had with them, they were going to be able to get through at least half of the winter. So they knew, like, they had rations for at least a little while. They could keep trying to gather more, and they might be in okay shape. Like, it looked like they might be able to do this. And they also started building a snow house on the ice that they were on to live in by forming uh, snow into kind of like walls and structure, and then pouring water over it to harden everything. 
Their ice hut was completed on September 28th, but just four days later, the ice floe that they built it on broke apart and water came rushing in. The three men had to hustle to get all their supplies together uh, and to get it up off the breaking ice before everything drifted away. The end of the entry uh, in Andre's diary, and he had two diaries, and this was the end of the first one, reads, quote, No one had lost courage. With such comrades, one should be able to manage under, I may say, any circumstances. With that kind of positive attitude, even in the face of complete misery and seemingly loss of all hope, the men started construction on another snow house two days later. They had spotted White Island earlier in their journey, uh, but they thought they'd be unable to land there because it looked like it was totally iced over. But October 4th, which was the same day they had started on their new house, they also saw a spot on White Island where they thought they might actually be able to move ashore. On October 5th, they did. They named their new camp Mina Andre's Place after Andre's mother because October 5th was her birthday. And so while it seems like things are looking up at this point in the story, Andre's last entry is just three days later on October 8th. He describes their happiness at being off the ice and actually on land and in a tent. And he kind of is sorting through what they're going to need to do, including collecting some driftwood and whale bones so that they can get some fires going and and meet some other needs. So we don't know for certain when or how the three adventurers died. When the White Island camp was discovered in 1930, their supplies were still in the boat. There was a pile of driftwood that was gathered but unused nearby. There was an entry in Strindberg's notebook for October 17th, which read home 7.05 a.m. But based on the fact that it was written in ink, which would have frozen and been unusable in the climate that the men were in, they believed that this was an expectation he had of arriving home in Sweden on a train. Yeah, they think that entry was written bef- long before any of their kind of polar adventures happened. Um, as we said, the cause of death... Uh, we don't know, and it remains one of history's mysteries, and it will probably remain that way forever, because the remains that were found uh, by the crew of the Norwegian sloop Bratvag in 1930 were actually cremated uh, before they were buried. So additional testing of those bodies can never be done. We're going to step through some of the most common theories and some of the common arguments against them. So the first is poisoning from their food tins. There's a fingernail from a glove that was tested and had high levels of lead in it, but it's not believed to have been enough to have killed anyone. Uh, there is also a theory that one of the men had a psychotic episode and it resulted in a murder-suicide. But since the men were rather shockingly upbeat throughout all of this horribleness, m- most people think this seems unlikely. Although there certainly have been cases throughout history of people that seem really happy and excited and then they have a psychotic break, so... It's possible, but we're not sure. There's also the possibility of dehydration. Yeah, there's not a lot of way you can detract that, since once they found these bodies, they were pretty much completely decomposed, so there wasn't any tissue to really test then. Right. Even if they were cremated, there's not much. We wouldn't know. Right, and a lot of the nearby water that would have been available to them would have been salt water that would not have helped them. Uh, Trichinosis or botulism is another popular theory uh, from eating uncooked polar bear or seal meat. Uh, none of the diaries really describe anything that could be pointed to as evidence of the symptoms associated with trichinosis. However, 
Uh, this was a new and exciting fact I learned while doing this research. Botulism is apparently really common in seal meat if it's not really thoroughly cooked. So it's possible we know they were eating seal. So that's one possibility. People have suggested that it might have been scurvy, but three months really isn't long enough for scurvy to kill someone. No, it can make you pretty sick in that time, but uh, probably not to the point of fatality. Another theory that has been put forth is a polar bear attack. Uh, this one isn't really terribly likely. Uh, for one thing, Andre's gun was next to his body when they found it, so it seemed like he was actually like watching for danger and it would have been unlikely. But also, uh, the bodies that they found, Andre's looked like it may have been disturbed, but most people believe that may have happened by a bear after he had already been deceased. Because it just looked kind of shuffled about. It didn't look so much like an attack situation. There's also the idea that maybe since they had all this opium around, it was a deliberate opium overdose, but they had all seemed to be in such reasonably good spirits that that seems maybe not as likely. Yeah, you would think that if they were coming to that conclusion, there would have been a diary entry about it. Uh, another one that is is sometimes brought up is the possibility of vitamin A poisoning from polar bear liver. However, we know that the men knew of this danger. They wrote about it. Uh, so it seems unlikely that they would have taken that risk. They could have asphyxiated uh, because they were maybe using their cook stove inside the tent. Yeah, that's a possibility. Again, we don't know for sure. That one, there's... It's kind of like, maybe we don't have a lot of evidence one way or the other. Well, there's uh, the, the reasonable people would probably think that's a bad idea, but that's the only counter argument I have. Yeah, well, and, you know, there is there are opiates involved. So <laughs> There's the possibility that, that at some point they went, you know, it would be great and it will keep the tent warm. Let's bring it in. Uh, the, the last theory that we're going to mention almost seems in some ways like the most obvious which is that they died from cold and exhaustion. I mean, at this point, they had been dragging these multi-hundred-pound sledges around for a while. They had gotten wet in freezing water repeatedly. You know, they were struggling with other issues. They were dosing with opium and morphine. Like, their bodies were taking a lot of abuse. Yeah. Well, I keep thinking about two different video games during this uh, episode. And one is like, this feels like a frozen wasteland version of Oregon Trail. Um, <laughs> and the other is one of my favorite things to play recently, which is a game called The Long Dark, which is basically about surviving in this frozen wilderness. Um, and one of the things that happens in The Long Dark is if you go to sleep and it turns out it's not warm enough to keep your body warm and survive, uh, you die. And it, it just, the little thing comes up that just says you have faded into the long dark and... I think the most believable thing is that they thought they were warm enough to sleep through the night, but they were not. Yeah, which would make sense because, uh, you know, we don't, unlike something like the Dyatlov Pass incident where we see people like paradoxical undressing and trying to dig through the snow, this seems like everything was pretty undisturbed. And if I'm understanding my research correctly, it seems like they all died probably around the same time, which is one of the reasons that like the opium theory gains a lot of uh, fans is like, well, they all died around the same time. Surely, uh, at least we think that based on how the bodies were positioned. For all we know, they died and were propped up by, you know, another of the men and he, they certainly couldn't bury them in the ice. So we don't really know. But what we do know is that once those remains were discovered in 1930, 
uh, and the men were returned to Sweden finally, they were really greeted as heroes. Remember, this was a big effort on uh, Sweden's part. Like, there was a lot of uh, fervor around it. There was a lot of excitement that Sweden could be the country that got to the North Pole first through this amazing approach that no one else had ever tried. The king had backed them. So, and then they vanished. So there was a lot of, there were a lot of question marks that were finally getting some answers. Uh, and when they finally arrived, uh, there in Sweden, 200 ships had joined the procession to bring them home and King Gustav V met them at the pier. Among the items that were recovered from Camp Mina Andre's place were several cans of film. Some of the film was damaged or exposed, but there were 93 frames that were intact and were later developed. Strindberg was the photographer. More often than not, he had dabbled in photography prior to the expedition. There are images of Andre and Frankel with a polar bear they'd killed. And there's an image of the balloon lying on its side with Andre and Frankel standing nearby. There's even a timed exposure shot of all three of the men who are pulling one of the heavy sledges. And uh, you can actually see these photos at the Grena Museum in Sweden, uh, and they also have them online. The museum has scanned them all and put them online, and we'll include that link in the show notes. Because of the three decades that this film spent out in the freezing cold, the images are not particularly perfect. They're flared and burned out. Some of them have ghostly images of the three men. The view of Andre in public opinion has really shifted throughout the years. Sometimes people label him as a madman. Other times... People paint him as the hero of Sweden, and sometimes they portray him more as a fool who had dreams of fame and glory. But he and his companions were, it would seem, really courageous and tenacious, if nothing else. Yeah, I'm so blown away perpetually by just how, like, upbeat they managed to stay through all of this, because I know I would be a whiny complainer right about the moment that we lost the ropes at the beginning of the trip. But I also would not probably do a trip like this because I enjoy the comforts of home. Uh, yeah, it's such a, a wild story. We've had a few requests for this. It pops up in various places. Um, it's, it's sort of a ceaseless fascination. So, uh, and it's one of those things that we could go on forever and ever because a lot of the, um, the journals have been digitized and can be read online and, it's very, very cool stuff. But I'm going to switch gears and read some listener mail about the Step Pyramid of Djoser. And this is uh, from our listener, Christy. And she says, without getting into too many details, because I could write about my visit there nonstop until the day I die, the first place we visited, she's talking about a visit to Egypt in 2009, was to this Step Pyramid. I was astounded at its size. You can look at pictures until the cows come home, but actually being there is remarkable. We had free range of the whole site and got to wander around, mostly unescorted. The pyramid was shrouded in scaffolding, and when I asked one of the guides about it, she said it was not because of instability, even though it is, but because they want to, quote, make it pretty like the Great Pyramids so tourists will come. I found this amusing until I realized I was that tourist. At the time, excavation work was still being done in large, deep pits, and we eventually came upon a large group of local men lifting a huge slab of stone. It was a false door. I know you spoke of how only one door was functional and the rest appeared to be for artistic use only. Sorry, uh, I'm 
reading this in tiny print. However, according to the guides, these doors were very important to the afterlife and to confuse looters. The doorways that could not be open could be, quote, opened by spirits passing on to the next life or to confuse bad spirits. The door itself was huge, heavy, and the details carved into it were breathtaking for being as old as it was. Uh, And she attached some pictures of it. Also, one thing most people don't know or don't acknowledge is the large amount of stray dogs near the pyramids, and this one in particular. Being part of an animal animal rescue group in the U.S., my heart was torn to pieces at the amount of stray dogs at historical sites. They would hang out in the shade, hoping that tourists would feed them. And they were friendly, but they were malnourished. The worst part was the amount of puppies that were roaming around or sitting in the shade of tour buses. I wanted to smuggle them back with me so badly. The whole trip and visiting this site will be something I will never forget. I'm heartbroken now at the unrest in 2011 that's left sites like these abandoned or worse, completely destroyed. Um, thank you so much for sharing this. This is only an excerpt from her email, but it's, I always love getting someone's firsthand account, especially when it's descriptions of sort of what was going on in this historical area that we don't always get from like news stories. So that was good. Christy is not the only person that I have heard from, uh, both among my friends and our listeners who have talked about traveling to foreign countries and historic sites and being sort of startled at the stray animals. That's always a hard one. I don't, I don't not an easy fix for any of it but that is the scoop if you would like to share with us your stories of travel to historic sites or uh, maybe you are a balloonist and you want to talk about that you can do that you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com you can visit us at facebook.com slash history at history on twitter at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on pinterest.com slash history. I look forward to pinning pictures of the balloon adventure. Uh, you can also visit our Spreadshirt store at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com and get yourself some goodies. If you would like to research a little bit more uh, about a topic related to this episode, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in the words hot air balloon in the search bar and you will get an article called How Hot Air Balloons Work. Uh, if you would like to visit us on the web, you can do that at mistinhistory.com for show notes, a complete archive of all of our podcasts, and the occasional other extra goodie. And we hope you do visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 